please do your job as an introducer. An introductorist, thank you. Yes. Celebrated introductorist. Who introduces you to the stage when you're the famous introductorialist? You get a lesser aspiring introductorialist to come <laughs> and practice. Uh, you know, like a warm-up act, like a ba- like a support band. They come in. <laughs> they do an intro. The best is when, I love it, which genuinely happens is when you get someone who introduces someone who's going to introduce the main speaker. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's layers upon layers of introductions. I'd love put someone a, to come a, on and be like... Put the second person back on. Now you're going to hear someone who's going to tell you who's going to introduce Jennifer. Watch out for that. <laughs> but wait, what's your role in all this? Never you mind. They run away. I'm ready for this conference. Yeah. What's it about? War crimes. Oh, well, I'm not taking this seriously enough. <laughs> <laughs> Jen and the Film Critic. My name's Jen, and this is my film critic, Paul. Say hi, Paul. Rawr, dinosaurs. I don't pay you to sing, oh. Paul. Please stop. I wish I'd seen Jurassic World in time for this podcast. <laughs> it's going to be very disappointing when I don't talk about it now. Are we talking about Jurassic World? Is it the first film you're going to talk about? We're actually going to talk about Jurassic World Dominion. Dominion. Dominion, the third and hopefully final installment <laughs> in the trilogy of Jurassic I'm World. I'm sensing films. a five stars for this one already. <laughs> well, only because I can't get six. Ah. Yes, this is the third movie in Colin Trevorrow's, I guess, um, trilogy of movies that uh, themselves follow the trilogy of Jurassic Park films. Mm-hmm. A very ill-defined trilogy of Jurassic yeah. Park films. Trilogy yeah, made, in the fact yeah. that there were three of them. Yes, exactly. In name only, there were three of them. I don't know if there was a thematic concern that was resolved in those three acts. Yes, it was dinosaurs. Mm, and how, I spotted a theme. In, by the third movie, we all came to terms with dinosaurs and instead uh, took up uh, shouting into a megaphone instead. Oh, my favourite hobby. <laughs> Everybody's favourite hobby since then. Mm. And everybody has that action figure now of mother frantically looking for child. Yeah. <laughs> we now have this new trilogy and it's now concluded. Colin Trevorrow, who made a good movie once in safety safety not guaranteed okay and we've all been punished for liking that ever since oh <laughs> it's been a string of uh so fairly bad films the first jurassic world came out and was a rather hollow retread of the first movie of the jurassic park mm. movie with um fairly stock characters and big cgi effects that were quite uninvolving then you had the second one jurassic world uh Fallen Kingdom, I believe, which I don't think he directed himself. I think he might have just written the story for this one and produced it, but was baffling. Um, just one third of a Jurassic Park movie, specifically Jurassic, um, what's it called? Uh, the Lost World Jurassic Park, the second Spielberg film. Okay. And then two thirds of a haunted house movie with dinosaurs <laughs> for very little reason whatsoever. I've got to say, I'd rather be chased by dinosaurs and ghosts, so... Yeah, they're more tangible, mm. aren't they? Velociraptors, you can kick out of a lift, mm. which is tricky to do with a big scary ghost. Yeah. We've also had the big, uh, the Book of Henry and uh, work on Rise of Skywalker. So Trevorrow, he made safety not guaranteed once. Um, mm. At the end of the last film, dinosaurs were hilariously unleashed from the haunted mansion and spread across the earth. 
and there's a graphic at the beginning to indicate that somehow the Tyrannosaurs have managed to cross the Pacific Ocean at the Atlantic Ocean. They just snuck Maybe onto surfing ships. surfing on the swimming ones. Yeah. They snuck onto a cruise ship. They're held onto the back. I just like to imagine like a T-Rex just clinging to the back of a cruise ship. <laughs> People trying to learn how to samba on the deck. Yeah. Hang on a minute. What's it's just that? two. You can just see the eyes on a giant head just peeping up over the edge. <laughs> when you look over, he goes down again. Oop. Can't catch Oop. me. Oop. They have spread over the world. Dinosaurs have become endemic. I feel like this wow. was a bad approach to the dinosaurs that we took. Yeah. But we've decided that herd immunity is probably the better <laughs> way to go. Yeah. So dinosaurs are everywhere, all over our world, and we're having to we're struggling to learn how to live with them. Mm. Breeding at an extraordinary rate. Into this world we have Chris Pratt mm. and um Bryce Dallas Howard. And they have a little girl who is also a clone, just like the dinosaurs. <gasps> And I'm pretty sure when they described the cloning process, it was very straightforward. It wasn't like they grew her in a tube. Mm. You know, I have no mother. What am I? No, they just... Yeah. That was it, in fact. They explain in this movie the mother just was interested in having a child only made of her own DNA. Wow. Because, you know, yeah. genetic diversity is very much an, not an essential part of reproduction, I think. No. I mean, I'm perfect, so I just want one more of me. Exactly. That's why asexual beings are definitely the um, asexual reproducing beings are the apex of this world mm. um, and always manage to spread completely successful successfully without any genetic complications. Nevertheless, hey, this little girl. Look at the amoeba, Paul. Hey, it's a wonderful thing. My favorite animal. All the authorities. And I don't know who the authorities are, really, but there are authorities <laughs> that want this little girl. I think it might Illuminati. be the the shady corporations and yes the illuminati who want this girl so they're on the run in this dinosaur infested world simultaneously um sorry if this sounds rambly it kind of is <laughs> simultaneously we have dr ellie sadler from the first movie played of course by um laura dern mm. who yes has been recruited to investigate an organized well yes yeah, she is recruited to investigate a uh, sort of a harmful locust species that used to exist so prehistoric locusts have come back to uh oh. to earth and ruining crops which just could out pose of an how? ecological disaster wait what mm, <laughs> well that's exactly what she wants to know oh so, okay so that is that is okay sure fine yeah that, that's the <laughs> sort just, of drama okay. thing <laughs> they're not just here okay they have in fact been genetically engineered to eat crops because the only crops that are not getting eaten are the ones uh, um, owned by a specific company Oh. A company run by Dodgson, I think his name is. It's the guy who hired Nedry to steal dinosaurs in the original Jurassic Park. Uh, yeah. The guy who shows up at the uh, chill-looking uh, restaurant where he gives Nedry that uh, weird little squirty can with the DNA mm. things in it. Um, so yeah, that beloved character <laughs> is back in order to finally pay off that plot hole, I guess, because he didn't come back again and people think that's a plot hole. Whatever. He's oh. here and he's basically um steve jobs now mm. and he wants to spread his terrible locust across the world so that everybody's gonna have to buy his brand of corn <laughs> this is ridiculous sadler and grant are therefore investigating this and of course jeff goldblum is already there giving motivational speeches to staff between lunches i don't quite get what his role is but he's there mm. meanwhile the evil corporation has managed to find the girl and have kidnapped her along with Fan favorite character Blue the Velociraptor's kid. Ah, yes, Blue the Velociraptor. 
Mm. The somewhat tame Velociraptor who became a friend to the group. She had a, a, a kid, and now the kid has been stolen as well. And for one sweet moment, it looks like there's going to be a globetrotting adventure featuring Blue the Velociraptor coming with the gang. Oh, that but unfortunately good. not. Blue stays home. Oh. And it's just um, the much less developed character played by Chris Pratt. Mm. Um, and Bryce Dallas Howard, they go searching for this Velociraptor and in doing so become embroiled in the dinosaur black market mm-hmm. and various other things before eventually everybody ends up on the same island together and there's dinosaurs on the loose, oh no. So, that's a lot of plot. Mm. Is, does it actually capture anything of what made Jurassic Park special? I think what made Jurassic Park so special, the 1993 movie, that is, I think, the movie I've seen more than any other movie Fair. ever made. Because there was a period in my childhood where I saw it every Sunday. Um, and yeah, it's probably the film I've seen the most. Uh, so there's a big nostalgia potential there. But I don't know, unlike most people, for me, it just means I kind of don't want to watch it <laughs> rather than be drawn to it. I think that's actually generally the way that we're going with nostalgia now. But the thing that was wonderful about Jurassic Park, after I move aside all of my childhood connections to it, is awe mm. and peril. Mm. It's, wow, dinosaurs. And then, oh, God, no, dinosaurs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what it does so well. Yeah, it it really does this does. wonderful sense of just, it's incredible that these things are here and the special effects are amazing. Mm. And, wow, look, we can actually make dinosaurs real. And John, you know, John Williams' score is just working at its top in order to make you really feel the weight and power of these beings, you know, but in both, you know, safety and threat. Here, the dinosaurs are just kind of weightless and mundane. Mm. They're so overabundant that you can't even really appreciate the abstract nature of a dinosaur. In the original movie, every time a dinosaur shows up, it's special. Mm. Like when Nedry crashes his car and suddenly there's a dinosaur there. It's like, wow, that's a thing. It's here. And there are so many moments similar to it in this. And you're just completely numb to it because they do use more uh, practical animatronic dinosaurs than they have done in the past cool. but they just don't know how to film them in such a way as to make them otherworldly mm. and to make them exciting and that's a weakness of trevorrow's direction always has been uh there's no connection to the dinosaurs really and if you remember the original jurassic park kind of made the t-rex the antagonist and there was this big threat coming from yeah. it and you know in the final moments you know it built up to this and the velociraptors in particular there's a very personal kind of hatred Ooh, yeah that the characters kind of share with them because, you know, they're these horrible predators that are just going to get you no matter what. Mm. And they're a palpable threat. There's a moment at the end of this movie where the dinosaurs kind of fight and the humans are ignored because the dinosaurs have beef with each other. And the character of that beef is basically, you ate my lunch, you <laughs> bastard. Yeah. And that's the big dramatic closing conflict of the film. The moment that ends the movie mm. is screw you, buddy. Yeah. I'll teach you to take my lunch. <laughs> Look, that's that's a that's a motivation I can relate to. <laughs> I can get on board with this. Yeah. So it could lean into camp, but it doesn't quite go far enough. There's moments in there where you get enjoyment from how silly this world is and its concepts are. Um, early on, they need to establish that dinosaurs becoming endemic is a problem for humanity. Mm. And after a very tense moment, a very uh, where a fishing you know vessel desperately hauls in the much-needed cargo of fish they need to feed their families and to sell, you know, and make their industry work, a dinosaur just comes out and just effortlessly bites the whole cage Mm. and takes it away. And it's like, you know, okay, this is going to prove problematic for an ecosystem already under strain from, you know, mankind's behavior to support giant life forms like this. And the next image to illustrate the problem of dinosaurs becoming endemic is a couple at a wedding 
trying to throw doves into the air to celebrate their union. And a pterodactyl just swoops down and eats the dove. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Ruining their day. Oh. oh. But We've the wedding industry is big business, Paul. <laughs> and no one's going to book no. that wedding planner again. You allowed a pterodactyl to swoop down and eat a dove. You better get... you. I blame them for not getting their pterodactyl insurance. <laughs> you're right. It's open air weddings are just you're asking mm. for trouble these days. <laughs> you hope to get the same kind of enjoyment that you might get from like a straight to DVD Sharkasaur versus Tyrannotops kind of <laughs> affair, but it's just not there. And thematically, there's something about corporations manipulating the natural world for its own ends, which is good, but it doesn't fuel the plot. The plot is driven by perfunctory you know, machinations of the characters. And the characters are just very nothing, really, with some terrible performances, even from seasoned veterans like Laura Dern and, you know, Jeff Goldblum, because they're all directed to basically act like teenagers, Mm. which is what we got from the first movie as well. And I remember when Jurassic World came out, there was a review that sort of talked about the characters and, you know, it was a sort of talking heads review and one person said, I like the characters in the original movie. And the other one said, oh, what, Ellie Sadler was a great character? And it's like, yes, she was, because mm. although she wasn't conventionally a movie character, you know, these various things that people, that screenwriters tell us you need to have to make a movie character, she was very natural. Yeah. They were all very natural, believable human beings who would react to the threat and wander around them in very believable ways. They would mumble, they would talk over each other, yeah. and when something scary happens, they would scream like you wouldn't believe, like they were literally going to die. And that helped us to invest in the presence of the dinosaurs. Here, everyone just acts like, you know, a big camp fest and it's not entertaining. So, Mm, yeah, I was very disappointed by this one. And it doesn't even have the good grace to be baffling like the last one was. So I think I'm actually going to give this one star. No. Yeah, it's the one star that actually actively irritated me. Wow. Is that because it has such a legacy to compare it to? I would hope not, because you always want to compare a film to, uh, you know, take a film on its own terms. And on its own terms, I think this is a fairly bad film that doesn't have anything in the sense of scale. It's just having Jurassic Park there, one of the best blockbusters Mm. ever made, is a very handy point of comparison Mm. to say like, hey, this is how you make this premise work. Isn't it a shame that this movie didn't manage to do that or find Mm -hmm. anything new to say about any of this? Interesting. But what about the bit with the pterodactyls? That was new. (laughs) It was new. It was new, Paul. Yeah. There was scope here. Like, (laughs) it's interesting to think. To question mankind's assumed primalcy on this Mm. earth by reintroducing apex predators that we're unable to deal with. But at the back of your head, you are just thinking, couldn't we deal with them? We probably could. They're big lizards. We could probably sort it out in a week or so. Maybe a few weeks. They're quite visible as the thing. They're quite visible. And we do have guns that work quite well, Mm. is the problem. And they reintroduce the dumbest thing from the last movie, which is trying to sell the idea that dinosaurs would be a viable weapon that would be interesting on the weapons market and the way they did it in the last one was we've trained this dinosaur all you have to do is point a laser at your target and when the dinosaur sees the laser they will become why not shoot him if you can point a laser at the target just shoot them like you don't have to go get the bullet back and force it back into a cage afterwards (laughs) You don't have to feed the bullet, you know, pounds of meat in the weeks Mm. leading up to months and years leading up to your attack. And they do it again in this. And it's just, oh, God, it's a refusal to learn in there as well, which is very frustrating. I'm disappointed, but there are better blockbusters about. Such as? 
such as Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun. Come on, hot Top shot. Top Gun. Do, 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 do. I don't know the tune. That's it. It's the, uh, bow. Take My Breath Away. Take My Take breath, breath Away. Bow, bow. Bow, bow. Hey. Bow, bow. Take My Breath bow, Away. Bow, 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 bow. <laughs> That's, yeah. That's from the original Top Gun. And that makes a very memorable return because... For the very moment this movie starts, it's just it's Hans Zimmer doing the music, oh, nice. and it's um, with Lady Gaga making Ooh, contributions, which is fun. interesting. Um, yeah, and just immediately it's that heavy synth noise, mm. and you just feel that you've been taken back. I haven't seen the original Top Gun. Me I have neither. To say. By all accounts, it is a divisive film. Okay. Tony Scott '80s film that has middling reviews, but is held in somewhat high regard by fans of camp '80s cinema yeah. because of its slow motion. Uh, basketball sequences yeah, and so uh, close, aerial photography. So close to just being incredibly, well, it's just quite homoerotic. Yes, it's very homoerotic. <laughs> Everyone's in their little tighty whities just getting all greased up and jumping on each other. And men are allowed to touch each other, Ooh. look each other in the eye and say, you can be my wing t- wingman anytime. Yeah. And that's that's important. It's important. And they maybe give each other a little kiss. Find the vocabulary to make love to each other yep. uh, in ways that don't involve their genitals yep. because that's too far. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's everything but is what yeah. um, men really want for their action movies. Yep. So, what, what if you just made an outright, explicitly gay action movie? I feel like it'd mm. be great. I think so too. Just like two, just like action movie, but instead of guy gets the girl, just guy gets his mate who's a guy. Fellow guy. Vin Diesel and The Rock just make out at the end of The Last yeah. Fast and Furious. So the homoeroticism is still there. It's still very hot, Good. you know, kind of muscly men tossle, uh, jostling about with each other. I'm yeah, and it still very much dwells on the male form during the Beautiful. obligatory beach sports scene, which is fantastic. Mm. We have a very uh, high energy sort of pop m- uh, number that plays. So you'll be glad to know that scene is still very much intact. The director here is Joseph Kaczynski, a man who has always been accused of being style of a substance mm-hmm. um, throughout his career. He made Tron leg. Legacy, okay. uh, the beginning of his career, which is very much that beautiful aesthetic, just completely, you know, mm. kind of revolutionary mm. at the time. It was a way of, you know, we're seeing more and more of that aesthetic now, this sort of very bold use of color and lighting mm. uh, in digital spaces that was just incredible with the Daft Punk soundtrack. Mm. Sounded great, completely unremarkable movie otherwise. Uh, and then he made Oblivion, which had similar kinds of problems and felt like a scrapbook of sci-fi movies at the time. You know, little bits of Wally. Little bits of uh, just sort of post-apocalyptic movies. So it's just all sorts of things crammed into oblivion. Um, and again, looked beautiful, but not too much to it. Now we have Top Gun Maverick. And again, I think we are seeing style over substance here, but my God, is the style good. <laughs> you know, it's just this incredible commitment to purely cinematic thrills. This cool. is cinema as a roller coaster, as um, Martin Scorsese described Marvel movies. But this is the roller coaster, you know, this mm. is the excitement. There are moments in this movie that just completely grip you. You know, when you've got just a lockdown shot of Tom Cruise in his cockpit, with, which is pulled back enough that you can see behind him the landscape just swirling and twisting past him, and just these incredible shots that assure you that what you're seeing is actually largely real, that they actually did yeah. mount cameras onto these planes and put the cast in them. You know, and often, you know, piloting was done by people who know how to do that sort of thing, but <laughs> they still had Chickens. actor and moment together, which just, oh God, it just, it really just speaks to the absolutely unique potential of cinema to just completely mm. viscerally communicate this excitement to you and this threat um, in a way that, you know, Jurassic World needed. 
Which is therefore a shame that I'm finding Top Gun Maverick to be such a hard sell to people. And I think maybe people are insisting that it has, you know, the baggage of the previous movies. You know, people who haven't seen the original, but the beats are kind of, you know, people who haven't seen the original. But you don't need to worry about that because the beats are all filled in. And it's very obvious that the original had a very straightforward narrative. There was a bully character. There was a a best friend character who died. Mm. There was a mentor figure. And it's very reverential and unchallenging to the legacy characters uh, who return, including a real reverence to Tom Cruise's Maverick, which is quite funny. Moments where a character will just stand awestruck looking at a screen and just say, he's the fastest man alive. (laughs) (laughs) Genuine line from the movie. (laughs) It's just, it's great. It's, it's really, it's really fun to see that. (laughs) And on the other side of the thing, we have Val Kilmer, who of course, you know, the actor Val Kilmer, um, is now experiencing throat cancer, which is making it very difficult for him to perform. But he is in this movie and it's kind of in a tributary kind of way that, Mm. and they find a nice way around that. And it's, you know, probably the more emotionally affecting moments are the moments that involve Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer's interaction. That's actually a fairly compelling sequence with the two of them. There are new characters. They're fairly thin. Um, We have, I think a character died in the last movie. I I don't know his name. Goose, maybe? Oh, that sounds about right. And now he has a kid who's nicknamed Rooster. Um, and so there's resentment because it seems like Tom Cruise maybe caused that character's death. So obviously there's resentment with him and his son, who's also trying to, you know, who's trying to follow in his father's um, footsteps, although hopefully not too closely. Um, so that causes tension. That's Miles Teller playing that role. Okay. Um, and you've got other characters in there as well, including a girl one for change. A which girl is, uh, one? A girl one! Don't worry, she doesn't get in the way of the basketball sequence. The, um, <laughs> The football sequence. Um, she was she a cheerleader? <laughs> she's yeah, she's there, but don't worry. The focus is definitely going to be on the bods, mm. the metal bods. Um, yeah, she's a fun character, but they're all just you know kind of they're all just here and they're vaguely upbeat characters who are struggling with the pressure of having to do this very difficult mission. Mm. I haven't described the plot. Maverick. I don't think you need to. <laughs> he's a test pilot, but he's been called back to train a bunch of young cadets on how to mm. do a very difficult mission. Curiously. They've still managed to make the Middle East the bad guys. I think we're in Afghanistan and they're developing a chemical. Look, where else is it going to be? I know. you. Can, if you want your movie to play in Russia and China, then you can't really mm. make them more realistically. Probably the bad not so guys, worried so. about Russia anymore. Well, I don't know. There's still money to be made, Jen. Yeah, I guess. And I guess they are still quite good friends with China. Yeah. I don't indeed. know. We're so. getting political. Let's get we're out of here. We're getting political. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, the writing team are not the most talented, although. You do have Christopher McQuarrie in there, who does typically write really good films, but also wrote The Tourist. Oh, and one of the other screenwriters is the screenwriter of American Hustle, which I thought you'd might like to know. Oh. <laughs> Rubbish film. So, but luckily Rubbish. they know their place, which is to set the stage for big set pieces, and they do that very well. So, yeah, it's a very exciting movie. I wouldn't come into it expecting anything to you know to change your life, you know, redefine the blockbuster. I've seen people describe this as like this decade's Mad Max Fury Road. I don't think it's doing anything that incredible, that expressive, that, you know, adventurous with the form. I don't think it's that pure an example of cinema. Mm. But this has set pieces that will just completely throw you and remind you of why you fell in love with with the cinema. So, yeah, it's going to be four stars. Okay, fun. Yeah, it's a really good fun movie. Nice, great. Yeah. I think I would watch it. Oh, I never said. I probably wouldn't watch Jurassic, whatever. Jurassic World Maverick. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, that's the one. 
Uh, but Top Gun Dominion? Maybe. I must admit, I was one person who, when I saw the trailer, I was like, ooh, just remaking it to make some money. I know, but, it uh, felt like I a cash-in. But... Yeah, but if you say it's good, then. Yeah, it's it's Tom Cruise, you know? He mm. is this continuing yeah. proponent. He might be the last movie star, you know? And mm. a movie star in the traditional sense of just someone who maybe doesn't always wheel out the best performances, but is there because their presence is exciting. Yeah. And because they're going to do things that normal folk can't. He's a very you know, good action star. He's a great action star. He's willing to go the extra mile. Mm. Especially if it involves running there. <laughs> and Yeah, and you've got to respect that. And yeah, just enjoy the fruits of those labours whilst they're mm. about. Yeah. Until he eventually inevitably dies in a stunt. <laughs> running. Yeah, running. He runs, into a, he runs into a fan. Ugh, yeah. ugh. 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 Yeah. <laughs> it made my hair look it made his hair look great just before the end though yeah <laughs> okay would watch it if you yeah yeah i would go see it especially in the cinema yeah. i think at a cinema it'd be particularly fun yeah i think so at the mm. c- really do try and check this one out at the cinema in the biggest screen for- um, format that you can <laughs> there's an imax in london there is there's several yeah. imaxes get in yeah get in one <laughs> um okay what else have we got Speaking of hotshot pilots... Me? They made a film about me? They finally made a film about Jen, and they've called it Lightyear. Ah. Yeah. So, Buzz Lightyear is Mm. a space ranger, part of a space ranger corps, and they are on a mission on an alien planet, and something goes wrong, and the ship crash lands and gets stranded there, and there's no chance of rescue, so they are going to have to make it off-world. Um, and the mm-hmm. only way to do so involves developing a new fuel cell and breaking the speed of light, which um, Buzz continually tries to do, but because of the time dilation effect, every time he does so, the colony back on this alien world moves forwards by four years or so, or, you know, potentially more. Mm. So on these solo missions, he is becoming more and more estranged from the people on this world as they grow older. And then, yeah, on one of his final jumps, he returns to find that things have gone quite dramatically wrong. Interesting. Yeah, so obviously you're going to have high expectations from Pixar Animation Studios. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, it, for all the people who want to see this as like a cynical cash-in, look at the movies they've made since the last time they went to the t- Toy Story well um, to tap it. They have made Onward, Soul, mm-hmm. Luca, mm-hmm. and Turning Red. Just four mm-hmm. entirely unique, um, individual, very sort of cr- creative uh team led projects you know that are respectively love letters to familial relationships to <laughs> this bizarre mediation on the afterlife mm. a weird tribute to the films of uh, Federico Fellini and then you know the excellent sort of ode to teen- teenage ship yeah. you know uh, f- female puberty that was turning red the wonderful you know all wonderful films really excellent films and so there are high hopes for something that is emotional and intelligent that combines a sort of childlike wonder with something more. Mm. And Lightyear is fine. Okay. <laughs> it it accomplishes its mission, and it is an ah, interesting mission. mission. Yeah, like space. yeah. Ah, like a space ranger. Mm. Ranger. It's an interesting mission because the mission is that at the very beginning of the movie, that uh, titles come up that say something like "Before Buzz Lightyear was Andy's favorite toy." he was his favorite he was in his favorite movie mm. so this is meant to be the movie that andy watched that made him fall in love with buzz lightyear that led to him getting the toy you know toy story yeah. ensues um 
And so I saw some people online who were like, oh, does that mean that this is going to be like a 90s nostalgia fest? You know, I'm feeling fairly outraged that it's not because it's not. I've got to say, I'm pretty glad it's not. Yeah? Yeah, I don't need a 90s... Uh, in spite of my complaints about Jurassic World, I do not need something that was made to feel like a 90s blockbuster. Mm, We've had enough fair. 90s nostalgia recently. <laughs> um, and indeed, recently watching Obi-Wan has just really led me to oh. not want to see any more navel-gazing, sort of backward-facing uh, nostalgia-driven projects. And this movie does compare very well to Obi-Wan, I think, in terms of how it handles its legacy, because... Mm. Aside from the armor and a few lines, we're dealing with something that feels quite new. Because what we're dealing with is essentially baby's first interstellar or gravity. You know, it's a kid-friendly version of those kind of... It's a good primer for science fiction cinema in general. Good primer for primer. It's a good primer for primer. Mm. Definitely show kids light year before primer, otherwise Mm. they're going to be really lost. I don't know. I trust them to work it out. Oh, come on. You've got to trust your baby audience. (laughs) Uh, what have we got here that works? It's great production design. Everything looks fantastic and has this sort of excitement around it. You know, all the weapons and armor and stuff that they mm. use in the spaceships look chunky and good. And you can imagine little kids getting excited about that. The action sequences are fun and fairly inventive. There's a good sense of adventure uh, within this very contained story. It's kind of fun that it's not just a, glo- mm. a you know, globe trotting, like globes trotting <laughs> adventure mm. going from one world to the next. You know, the whole thing is set on this planet and the sort of loop around the outside of it which is yeah it means that you're able to build up a good sense of location and stake and stakes there was a slight video game style feel to the plot in as much as they'll have an objective <laughs> and the objective is clear and then suddenly it's like oh but before we do that we need to do this oh before <laughs> we can do that we need to do this you know and it's like we finally got the thing and then you drop it down a hole so now there's a level yeah, okay. where you have to get yeah. the thing back from the hole and it's like it can be a little frustrating that <laughs> that thing but it keeps you involved with some fairly likable characters. Um, and underpinning the whole thing is this fairly trite but quite sincere message about accepting failure, working as a team, living in the here and now, you know, with workaholic overtones. You mm. know, it's all fairly accessible stuff, but it's nice to, to see. It's nothing It's nothing like Soul that's actually trying mm. to make you ch- challenge, not only make uh, kids think twice about what they want from their lives, but also kind of challenge the parents as well in terms of mm. how they're living their lives. So... There's nothing quite that profound. And the time travel premise does have potential for more poignancy, although there is one very nice sequence that, involving that, but, you know, it doesn't quite mm. tie it all back together again for the end. And with that all in mind, with, with, with knowing that it does make for a relatively entertaining kind of family film, you then have to ask yourself, okay, but why Buzz? Yeah. Why not make a new movie, um, which Pixar is demonstrably not afraid to do? And in, before mm. the movie, we had a an advert for something called Disney's Weird World or Strange Planet or something, which is an entirely new IP entirely selling itself on the idea that it's a brand new property with weird stuff in it. You know, what insight are we getting into the character here? Mm. And in asking that, we have to ask, which character? (laughs) Because if this is the movie that is an origin story for Buzz, then are we building up to the character that Tim Allen's Buzz Lightyear thinks he is at the beginning of the movie? Or, like, mm. you know, what he's going to aspire to be, or what? You know, or, or are we building up a character which will follow the same arc as Buzz Lightyear the toy? It's yeah. it's strange, and I, I feel like ultimately they didn't really arrive at either. It's kind of hard to rectify this Buzz Lightyear. You know, Buzz Lightyear to the rescue! Mm. You know, it's hard to put those two things together, and this guy kind of just feels like 
a somewhat generic spaceman. Yeah. Because what was Buzz Lightyear the toy's greatest fault? It was his uh, ill-deserved sense of self-belief, right? Yeah. His arrogance. Yeah. There's not much of that at any stage in this. At the beginning of the movie, he messes up and he wants to fix it. He he doesn't work well as part of a team. He wants to do everything himself. He's basically okay, Doctor yeah. Strange from the Multiverse <laughs> of Madness in that respect. You know, that's kind of it. You don't. He's never comedically pompous. Mm. You know, which I think was the big appeal of the character in Toy Story. Yeah. So I don't know. It kind of, it can feel a bit like an economical marketing decision at the end of the day, which is a shame mm. because. Yeah, the character of Buzz is less fun and is lacking connection, especially once he starts jumping forward in time. But they don't make that lack of connection the point of the character either. Mm. So, ultimately, for all of its functional entertainment, I return to that original mission statement of making Andy's favourite movie, and it just makes me wonder if actually this is capable of being anyone's favourite movie. Yeah. And I think it does fall short a little, so... You know, they don't fumble anything or disrespect the franchise, but I don't know. I don't feel they quite justified in why this fella needs to exist. So I think it's a three star for me. Okay. Yeah, I hope to see different things in future. Mm. It's certainly, seeing the original, seeing the trailer when it first came out, certainly surprised me why. Yeah, it's it a weird idea. It needed right? to exist. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> it, even from the trailer, I got the sense that the tone of the film was not what I imagined yeah. Buzz being coming from <laughs> yes it's quite dour really yeah um i assumed buzz was a lot more sort of a space pa- cowboy a space yeah. cowboy space um, cowboy you know yeah um, more cocky yeah more cocky more like pow 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 adventures around the galaxy and I, then i could yeah. imagine you know andy how old eight and a yeah. half how old is he it's written on yeah something it's like written on his yes, shoe, that's right it? It <laughs> we is. know exactly how old he is <laughs> Um, oh god <laughs> yeah i can imagine you know then uh, a young boy in the 90s really getting into that character and wanting the toy yeah but not yeah, if exactly. it's a sort of thoughtful space yeah. sci-fi epic yeah i don't know mm. maybe that's just my assumptions no it yeah no i think it's fair to assume that i think it's fair to assume that you're going to get something that was kind of Lighthearted and a bit fun because this actually positions itself as being a bit more serious than that. Mm. I didn't mention that Buzz does have a comic relief character who is a robotic cat that is given to him to help him adjust back to his society okay. once he comes back from one of his missions, and then the cat accompanies him and is um no it doesn't it's safe behind and it just learns and that's quite a funny character I okay. enjoyed him so there is comedy in there mm. um but it's of the kind of comedy that you get in an action movie. It's the comic sure. relief. You know, the comedy is not the purpose of the movie like you may expect from Pixar, oh. which usually marries its comedy and action together in a much more natural way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, shame. Probably won't bother seeing this one. I wasn't that excited about the idea. No. So. It's, hard, it's a hard recommend. I'd rather just watch Onward or Soul again. Or I haven't actually oh, yeah. seen Turning Red yet. And I haven't seen Luca yet. They're both great. Yeah, better films, definitely better films. And also, mm. like I remember, the last time I remember being excited by the concept of Buzz Lightyear and thinking, "Oh, he's kind of a cool character," was like mm. the beginning of Toy Story Two. Do you remember that? That's told in a sort of earnest because it's like a video game, right? That is revealed to be that they're playing, and it just starts with him like flying through this canyon and then fighting oh, Zerg. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and is, is it is it dinosaur playing it? With... Yes, mm. with Ham. Mm, with Ham. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. It's good stuff. Um, yeah. So we're leaving behind Blockbuster Cinema now. Ooh. Yeah. Goodbye. A few weirder things. 
And mm. we start with a movie that I was so sure we've discussed before, I had to go check our episode list to see if we had, but apparently we haven't. It's All My Friends Hate Me. No, I also don't think we've talked about this yet. No, there we go. So, this is a movie we've both seen. No, we haven't talked about it yet. We've talked about it coming up. Yes. Yes. Well, it's yes. here. <laughs> um, this is um, Tom Palmer and Tom Stoughton writing, and Stoughton is also the lead, and uh, Andrew Gaynord is directing. This is the story of a man who goes out to a country manor in mm. order to uh, meet up with some friends to celebrate his birthday. Um, yeah. I can't remember how old he is. Is he turning 30? 30, thir- early 30s, I think. I'm not sure. If, I think, yeah, yeah. So around our sort of actual ages. Yes. And age he's, yeah. he's meeting some friends he's maybe drifted apart from a bit. University he's, friends, yeah. I think it's implied to be. Um, and they're coming together. And he's getting the impression, he's beginning to worry that maybe his friends don't like him very much. Mm. And also, there is a strange man that they've picked up at the pub who has now become a part of the event. Mm-hmm. And this guy may have some form of ulterior motive or grudge against our yeah. lead. So, yes, this is a horror comedy about mm. social paranoia. Mm. Horror in the sense of it's about paranoia and him keeping getting creeped yeah. out, not in that it's like a horror horror. No, although there no. are some mm. moments, there mm, are little there are, things true. that happen that sort of... True, true. You know, a lovely sequence early on involving a car with someone, you know, sleeping in it that's quite yes. menacing. And, yeah. you know, sequ- later on, there's there's a great, that great sense of creepiness to it. Creepiness mm. in the strictest sense in as much as you don't know what there is to be worried about. No. There's no. A, a sense of some sort of haunting going on here and some sort of, yeah, malevolent presence going on. I think I did even see someone incorrectly describe it as like a, a haunted house sort of story because it just has that sense of dread just mm. dripping out of the wallpaper. But it is entirely about social paranoia yeah. and it's very well observed. Some of the little interactions and just the tiny little ways that yes. people needle at each other um, in order to make pe- other people feel a little uncomfortable is just incredible. And it's very British in that sense, although I do think it might be universal. Mm. Um there's just this wonderful Britishness to the way in which people interact with each other, including just the, the frankness with which one character dresses down another, just saying, you know, you've been a bit crap this so far this evening. Mm. Yeah. You know. <laughs> There's something about the way that they're all constantly keeping up appearances and no one's really saying what they yes. think. And then every so often little bits will come out and they're kind of quite yeah. sarky to each other. Or Yeah, a little yeah. jokey comment. And it's like, well, yeah. hang on, how serious was that? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> And they're all quite, you know, well off from, yes. they've gone to a nice, you know, classic red brick university yes. and uh, they're staying at someone's dad's or uncle's mansion. Yes, it is, isn't big it? It's Archie's. Home. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you've got a bit of that playing into it, you know, things as well. Yeah. Everyone... Sense of folk horror, you know, you're yeah. not quite in the city now, you're out mm-hmm. in the country where things, things are, are weird. a bit more raw. Things yeah. are weird. Yeah, and there's a sense of tension and unease. Yeah. Um, and just, it's remarkable how similar horror and comedy can be in terms of mm. how you, you phrase it, sort of around building up tension and then a release. Mm-hmm. And this movie really masterfully plays with both to the point where you just, the, the audience was just laughing the entire time. Oh, and, you know, very good. Everything that was going on, whether it be a sort of overtly comedic moment or overtly horrific moment, you yeah. know, it's just, it really masters the two wonderfully. Um, and you have these... What you have is this wonderful impression of rounded characters in a subjective world. We're Mm. very much trapped in our main character's perspective on everything, but you constantly get the experience of other people pressing in and Mm. the sense that actually everybody's dealing with their own stuff. 
and everybody is uncomfortable and worried as well. But that is something that is held back by the sheer self-loathing and fear of our main character. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really impressive film in that respect and a very relatable one as well. Yes, very relatable. <laughs> I thought it really tapped into a lot of uh, social anxiety fears. Yes. That yeah. I, I know many people of our generation seem to have. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, because... Why? Constantly... I don't know, but we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. But yeah, it constantly posits everyone else as being like the jury and that mm. we're on we're on trial. Whereas, you know, eventually you get the sense, the idea that maybe everybody feels that way. But mm. it presents us with the evidence to suggest that no, everybody might be out to get our main character. And that's yeah. a very... He, st- he gets very paranoid. Yeah, and it, you're absolutely. Const- it's so wonderful because you're constantly flipping backwards and forwards between thinking, oh God, he's right, something's about to happen. And then, yeah, yeah. oh no, he's just being <laughs> paranoid. And then you get yeah. a little, little subtle clue and then backwards. And it's just is so creepy and so funny yeah. and like tense the whole way. And you just never know. And then the ending is excellent. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a great reveal at the end. And yeah, the final sequence is very good. So, yeah. And it's it's all, I think, completely cemented together by a brilliant performance from tom storson yeah. in the lead i think yeah. he's absolutely fantastic as just yeah. being baffled hurt and you know worried and a bit of a dick all at the same time mm. it's just it's a really great performance from him <laughs> i would agree i really enjoyed it yeah i, I gave it all five stars it was one yeah. of my favorite films of last year yeah. and it's finally in cinemas so do check it out yeah agreed yeah. Agreed. Aggrieved you will be when the film finishes. Yes. Highly recommend it. It's wonderful. Very entertaining. I'd love to see what they do next. Yeah, I don't know absolutely. If this is like if I feel like they had this great idea and concept for mm. this film, but I, yeah, I'd like to see if they've got, because was, this was just such an exciting and weird film. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's always very exciting when it comes from new talent because you just yes. think, oh God, what, what's going to be next? Yeah. You know, so yeah, that's definitely an exciting aspect of the film. Yeah. Well, cool. speaking of social anxiety and a vague sense of mel- me- uh, menace, perhaps less vague in this one. Vague sense of melons. Um, a vague sense of melons going around. Uh, we have got men. 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 Men, men, mm. men, men, men. It's not as frightening as two and a half men. Mm. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so this that. is Alex Garland's latest film. Alex Garland, director um, of Ex Machina and oh, Annihilation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very good films. He did direct Ex Machina, didn't he? I know he wrote it. I think he directed it. I'm going to say so. I'm not even going to look it up. I'm going to believe in myself and say that he directed Ex Machina. <laughs> I believe in you. Um, he wrote 28 Days Later, I believe, back in the day. So oh. he's been around and he's written some very good things. And here he directs a movie in which Jesse Buckley plays a woman who is recently aggrieved um, of her dead husband who died under very tragic circumstances. Bereaved? Do you mean bereaved? I think I do mean bereaved. Aggrieved of a, I'm just so annoyed at him for dying. <laughs> well, potentially, yes. Um, yes, bereaved and aggrieved at this whole incident and carrying a fair amount of guilt and, mm. yeah, unresolved things with her. She encounters, uh, she has gone out to the countryside in order to rent a cottage. Oh, don't do that. Yeah, why not? What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> <laughs> she has got out dinosaurs no. so she's go- oh no she's got out there in order to try and recuperate and yes the landlord ha- is is there and he's played by roy kinnear but so is every other man in this village um that she encounters and gradually she start- starts to believe that maybe one if not all of these men uh have some sort of 
horrible intent with her. So in spite of fairly positive, positive even. Positive reviews. In spite of fairly positive reviews, there has been a fair amount of uh, divisiveness, I'd say, with this film and maybe even a backlash, which Mm. in its nature recalled for me the reaction to Lars von Trier's Antichrist, which... Mm. With which this film shares more than a superficial similarity. Mm. Now, listeners to the One Good Thing podcast may know that I enjoy Antichrist quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and enjoy this as well. Um, and I think let's start with the stuff that works really well. Atmosphere and, and tension is superb. I watched it with a fairly busy cinema and the entire crowd was just absolutely wrapped by the pacing of the film because it takes a fairly slow pace, lots of you know, long mm. shots and um, sort of dwelling in these uh, uh, rural spaces as Jesse Buckley explores and travels about the place. And it has this fantastic pacing and this wonderful cinematography that really lures you in and immerses you into this story and this world that she's occupying. And we have these folk horror aspects, this aspect of sort of British countryside rural horror um, which often is defined by someone coming from the city and moving to the countryside and being stalked by nature itself, but also the sort of residents out here mm. who have been turned strange because of their proximity to nature. Um, it's all that fresh air. It's all that fresh air. It gets in your head and it does you in, not like the lovely city folk. Mm. That's what I blame it on for me. There's also a sense that the city folk have brought the evil with them in mm. some way. So all of that is at play here. There's body horror and a fairly shocking sense of violence in places just one or two places that sort of serve to recreate the trauma of jesse buckley sort of experiencing the death of her loved one um and also it explores the again subjective experience of terrifying male presence in society Mm. including on um, like each one of roy kinnear's manifestations kind of represents some aspect of male oppression of women whether that be sexual attention gaslighting from authorities or Mm. um possessive behavior and it dates it all the way back to you know historical treatments of women at the hands of men right the way back to sort of british cult iconography like the green man Mm. all of which is just anchored by jesse buckley's incredible performance again she's the you know really the tom staunton of this experience Mm. and she's incredible she's you know really just reactive and you know outraged and anguished by her experiences in a way that is very relatable and reassuring Mm. um and so that kind of brings us to the backlash because you do have this white male director telling a female story Mm. um and disadvantage to me here because i am a white male audience member (gasps) as well so i know you never told me that everybody hates finding this out including me Mm. um i hate having to impart this knowledge um and so so, you know of you paul there's a bit I of a peer... better of you. <laughs> I'm working on it, I assure you. And so you, there is a bit of peer-to-peer communication going on here because, yes, mm. I can say it successfully communicates the fem- the pres- the, you know female experiences of male oppression to me, <laughs> you know, someone who has no experience of it. Yeah. If you know people more experienced in this sort of thing want to tell me that it's not a realistic portrayal, um, that it's you know in any way misrepresenting these sorts of things, and I have no you know arguing to come back i will say though that i've seen many female critics sort of lauding the film and i saw it with a uh, with a female i saw it with, with katie maiden yes friend of the podcast katie maiden um mm-hmm. and she loved it she loved the film um so i can just safely hide behind their opinions and say that they said it's cool 
So yeah, can't have it me. Can't say I didn't engage with it enough. <laughs> I saw someone on Twitter accuse the film as being at its worst, playing into sort of male feels of pregnancy and childbirth and attempts to sort of other that. First of all, I would suggest that that fear of childbirth is fairly universal mm. as being a truly horrific and terrible thing to do. But mm. <laughs> um, I'm not sure quite that that's what's going on in that sequence. Um, yes, there is a birthing sequence, a fairly horrific sequence of birthings that go on. Ooh. I'm not sure if it's necessarily trying to other the experience of giving birth, more just sort of suggesting a lineage of oppression that goes on. Yeah. Um, a sort of horrible thing that begets one other thing and also the idea that Buckley has kind of nested her fears within you know within mm. each other and that she has to sort of come down to the deepest level before she's able to fully address the thing that's frightening her I mean that's the thing about metaphors isn't it everyone can yeah. you can interpret them in different ways so well, whichever you should one always, works for you yeah and you should always just think about what it would mean if you just took it completely li- literally as well and is yeah. that something you're okay also they just with? thought that might be fun and gross yeah and yeah. it is fun and gross so there is that <laughs> but also i saw someone using this movie as an excuse to say well i think this marks the end of elevated horror now first of all i hadn't heard the term elevated horror before february of this year when i saw scream 5 and i uh-huh. didn't like it and i don't like it it's a bad term <laughs> What they mean is horror movies that try to also have a point. <laughs> and sure. like that's a subgenre. Mm. And it's first of all it really insulting to other horror movies that maybe fall out of this time period and this category because it really just suggests that there is horror movies, but then there are the good ones. <laughs> the ones that are being made or for the you, ones the, that are saying something. The ones that will get shown in the Curzon so you can yeah. go and drink wine and eat cheese and watch it, which you can do to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> You won't enjoy that cheese. You'll vomit back up. <laughs> You'll have but... problems with the cheese. But the point is, horror is great, and you shouldn't <laughs> put it in a box. You shouldn't put the ones that are good in a box and say, "Oh, these ones I like. The ones that are a twenty-four, they're good." No, mm. horror is brilliant, and these movies are just parts of that tradition. Disagreed. <laughs> I agree with your overall point, but <laughs> I don't yeah, like so... any of them. I'm fair. I hate all of them. That's true. You, you're also not in favour of putting these in a box. You know? Yeah. But <laughs> equally bad fair enough equally not for you that's absolutely fine but yeah horror no bad this... i said bad paul don't you change my words <laughs> fair enough i'm trying to gaslight you so <laughs> as a man you see you see i feel i find the film oh, very authentic that explains it and i am roy kinnear right now oh <laughs> i saw the roy kinnear within myself whilst watching this movie <laughs> and i had to accept that so uh. But in in decrying elevated horror also, even if I were to recognize this as a genre that is now evidently over because of this and a movie called The Lodge that came out two years ago that I didn't see, but everyone says was terrible, even though it's well-reviewed. It's terrible because it's Uh. well-reviewed. One of those movies. So, but okay, fine. If you want to cast that out, go back to what? Exactly. Mm. You want to go back to the slasher movie remakes of the 2010s or the... Yeah, the, the incredible the torture porn movies go back no. to like hostile. No, this is better. It's good that movies try and be good now. Mm. The fundamentals are still here. Is the point? Even though mm. this movie very obviously is trying to say something more and is trying to say something about anxiety and grief and you know oppression, it's still a scary movie that will mm. freak you out and frighten you because there's some scary guy trying to get in your house and you don't know why. And if you want to dig a little deeper and figure out that that is because of various forms of trauma and how they make manifest and metaphor made manifest and all the rest of it, you can, but you don't have to. It's still a spooky (laughs) movie about a woman trying to escape from a terrifying, horrible, male-themed monster. 
and that's great. Yeah. In general, horror just allows you to be a little bit more experimental. And I think the great thing about horror movie audiences is that they're willing to accept slightly more transgressive experiences. Yeah. In general, they're willing to accept the idea that your movie's going to end with someone growing a vagina on their stomach and that they reach into it and find the thing that they needed to complete their whole life in the first place. Horror movie audiences are more willing to accept that than if it happens in a James Bond movie, for example. Oh god, that would be good at the end of a James Bond movie, though. <laughs> Bond grew a vagina and suddenly <sighs> realised he's never been happier. Well, didn't they try that and then it didn't work out? Well, I'm sure Phoebe Waller-Bridge would have pitched it. Yeah. <laughs> it got left on the table, but at least she got... I don't know what I can say. Anna, uh, Anna Diamas, this character <laughs> in yeah, No she Time to good. Die. Yeah, her. absolutely. That are was we the not, compromise. Um, are we still getting a female James Bond remake with the... I, I don't <sighs> think we are, are we? Because people didn't like her character. With Leanna Lynch. I don't mm. know. I hope so. Because I like that character quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, me too. And, would love to and see it wasn't that. supposed to be a, like a reboot. It was just a... Di- it wasn't... She wasn't becoming know. James Bond. Every time I think... Well, idiots are gone because none of my friends are idiots. Therefore, it's fine. <laughs> you do get brought out of your bubble. Oh, and the other day... LBC was on and they were talking again about Idris Elba being the new James Bond and one of the presenters saying, look, Ian Fleming gave a very clear description of what James Bond looked like in the first mm. novel and I feel like we should stick to it. That, he, it's himself. Yeah. Ian Fleming's description of James Bond is Ian Fleming and they haven't looked like Lee. that ever. <laughs> and Christopher Lee, yes, he, yes, that was an early choice. They've never looked like Ian Fleming's description. Look up a description at uh, the artist's rendition. Oh of what James Bond should look like. He has never looked like that. Make him old and black, it's fine. Or make him a woman yeah. and black, it's oh, fine. Oh, just anyone who's like, well, Hermione was never black in the books. And it's like, no, just like, whatever. Like, yeah. come on. Yeah. Fantasy. Absolutely. This guy is a fantasy spy. Yes. He's almost doing, he's on the edge of doing magic. This guy can get shot about 10 times and still be like, <laughs> fine, whatever. And he's like, no, it's yeah. all made up. It's imagination. <laughs> Engage with something deeper than their character. What does the character yeah. of James Bond mean to modern audiences? Is it still the vaguely aspirational, posh, travel log character that he was in the 50s when people were too poor to travel and so would mm. absolutely love the idea of a man who can travel anywhere on a government expense account and have oh, sex in a with... a beautiful car. And have sex with exotic women in beautiful cars with gadgets and guns. Mm. Is that still relevant? Yeah, but you can broaden it out a bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except the fact that it's not just men who want to have these dreams and, you know, yeah. things. And still have a globe-trotting, I want it to hypersexual... Yeah? <laughs> I want him to have... He wa- I want him to grow globe-trot less. Now that we can all go abroad, <laughs> I want him doing this around Scunthorpe. Well, that's why I love Skyfall. <laughs> because it ends in a cottage in Scotland. Yeah, it's true. That's very good. That's, very that's good. why but it's the best one. still put it in Scotland and everyone thinks Scotland's magical already. No. <laughs> I want this in like Blackpool. Grimsby. Yeah. Blackpool. <laughs> Blackpool. Blackpool. <laughs> Blackpool. Leanna Lynch in James Bond in Blackpool. <laughs> yeah. You could tell a really good James Bond story with a yeah. finale in Blackpool. It's got a tower and everything. Oh my God. It's got the UK's highest roller coaster. Just yeah. you do a fight scene around that. Yeah, I mean, Perfect. Alfred Hitchcock invented the modern Bond movie with North by Northwest and the various mm. spy thrillers he made, and they would always end basically in just a set piece set around whatever the local community had. And if that's yeah. a carousel, great. If it's Mount Rushmore, great. Or if it's, you know, the Eiffel Tower, whatever. Just figure out the thing and then just make a set piece happen there. I want them to, I want to see them make Blackfoot, Blackpool look truly beautiful like those <laughs> Italian villagers too. 
I'm trying to remember where St. Maud was set. I think that was in a, Br- a British coastal town similar British to... British coastal towns, I think, just have endless potential for, like, stories <laughs> because there's something weird. I grew up next to one, as did most of the population. We're just an island. Yeah. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I just True. think there's just something wonderfully bleak. <laughs> <laughs> and yet also you know yeah. like hopeful and where you know you feel like you're on a victorian holiday and then the weather yeah. turns and you're like <gasps> yeah and then everything goes wrong death <laughs> <laughs> oh well look i love it two more movies but i will say that i'm giving um skyfall what are we talking about men, men. i will give men four stars oh okay. um because cool. i really enjoyed it i have to accept the limitations of my own experience and the fact that this is addressing things addressing the horror in things that i don't firsthand experience but i have to acknowledge that that's part of the strength of horror is to do that mm. and maybe it would be more authentic if it came from someone who had firsthand experience of it but very much like antichrist i can't deny that this is a very effective horror movie and i just absolutely love effective horror movies so Great. i have to give it good for you points good based on my own experience for you yeah. i won't watch it no thank you Fair next enough. film please well we've got another horror movie it's <laughs> oh. earwig <laughs> oh no, I don't like the sound of this already. Yes, this is um, Lucille Hadzahalilovich's uh, latest mm. film. Thank you. Yes, so she's a French uh, filmmaker who is making a series of sort of very unsettling experimental genre pieces. Um, oh yes, and this is an adaptation of Brian uh, Catling's novel. And it's not, I want to say it's not overtly a horror film, but it definitely is as the thing because it's just... The story is a man has been employed under mysterious circumstances to help a young girl whose teeth are made of ice. Um, Mm. As a result of her teeth being made of ice, specifically her own frozen saliva shaped into teeth, um, the teeth need to be replaced each day. But it's a young girl. And so he regularly sort of harvests her saliva, freezes these little teeth, and then places them into her mouth in a sort of uh, denture set. Whilst he is doing this, he is living in a rundown Eastern European kind of 60s feeling tenement block. Mm. Um, and he has to regularly be there to check in over the phone with his mysterious employer. And he also spends various time going to the pub where he is haunted by figures from his past. Yeah. And there's other characters sort of milling around as well. So what we get is a very abstract feeling of guilt, resentment, confinement, in a film that is horror, fantasy, and thriller all together. But the Ooh. big thing to note about it is the pacing of it. Mm. Long sequences where we're just in these spaces with these characters. The little girl exploring this terrific kind of um, weird accommodation block, you know, in this wonderful field that has this very unique and distinct um, aesthetic to it that is influenced by lynch definitely she's influenced okay. by lynch i've seen her talk and she talks about lynching very the director terms. You mean. yeah david lynch um oh yes uh, no but the director of this film is influenced oh, yeah, by has, lynch. Has, yeah has a hell of a little bitch yeah she yeah it's very... it. <laughs> and the ref- the effect is that we have this unhurried movie that is full of mystery and runs completely at its own pace and just as a result has a dreamlike flow to it mm. And and the various references it's picking up on makes it feel like sort of just horror cinema is swirling around in the imagination of someone who is having a very somewhat fraught and dramatic dream that is nevertheless punctuated occasionally by big moments, but is generally generally just this long kind of drawn out um, sense of dread. Mm. And it's just, it, it's a very gorgeous film. It's a film that feels like it should be played at like three in the morning, three through five o'clock at a film fest. 
is mm. where this should be a film marathon is where this belongs because it it deserves to be a movie that someone gets like 20 years into their life and suddenly thinks what was that movie about the guy in the hotel looking after the girl with the teeth <laughs> what was that that was so weird did i dream that did i imagine it you know it's a movie that speaks to the subconscious and lodges itself there and it's just yeah very charming for that this is a movie that deserves to be stumbled upon okay <laughs> And yeah, it just lives on in the imagination. So I'm going to give it four stars, but I feel like it could easily work its way up to five. And it's a movie that's just going to stay with me, I think, and that I would Mm. look forward to seeing again. Interesting. Yeah. Very good. Spooky. Spooky. Yeah. Like little genre bits, like there's a picture they keep going back to that keeps changing every time they look at Mm. it. Yeah. It's just little things like that mixed in with this general sense of unease. Terrifying. Yes. Not as terrifying as our last film. Uh Uh-oh. Not a horror, so to speak, although it is horrid. (laughs) It is Nitram. Okay, I've not heard of this. I saw this film about six months ago at the London Film Festival. So actually Ah. nine months ago at the London Film Festival. Oh, wow. And I haven't seen it since, so I'm going from memory here. But this is just... But it's out of the cinemas now. It's coming out soon. So this is Mm. Justin Kurzel's movie. Justin Kurzel made Macbeth, uh, one of my favourite adaptations of Macbeth in 2015. With, uh, Michael the... Fassbender. Mm. Yep. Mm. Uh, he also made Assassin's Creed. Um, you know, the somewhat terrible movie. With Michael Fassbender? With Michael Fassbender. The very unfortunate step into the Hollywood. But he came back to form with uh, the true history of the Kelly gang a few years ago mm. about Ned Kelly and his cohorts, which was stunning. A ah. stunning film that was just really transgressive and really got to the uh, slightly lesser spoken about aspects of the character, including his obsession with like wearing dresses and you know, the, and enforcing his uh, gang to do the same. And yeah, just a very interesting character that was very well mm. captured in that movie. Most relevantly, at the beginning of his career, he made Snowtown, everybody's favorite, least favorite movie about uh, serial killers <sighs> because of how fraught that movie was. I saw that movie once. I never want to see it again. <laughs> um, I, there are still moments and sequences from it that stay with me and always will. Wow. Um, a very haunting film based on real life serial killers. And Ooh. so here we have Nitram. It's a portrait of a character named Nitram based on the perpetrator of the truly horrific Port Arthur massacre, one of the deadliest mass shootings, spree shootings in the world, and just an infamous chapter in Australian history. Uh, Nitram is the murderer's first name spelled backwards. Um, mm. The film gets inside the head of this disturbed young man, played by Caleb Landry Jones, and explores his strained relationship with his parents, his unusual friendship with an aging actor, which takes on a sort of Sunset Boulevard-style quality to it. Uh, She's played by Essie Davis, and is very good. And his growing fascination with violence. Mm. It's a very controversial film. It's a film that was opposed in its release. You know, why make this? Why make a movie about this guy, this horrible man? Um, and what insight is going to be lent from doing so. Um, and I think it's worth, first of all, saying that it, it does not feel exploitative. The film stops dead just before the massacre takes place. Mm. Literally, he goes to the place where it happened, Point, Port, uh, Port Arthur? Point Arthur? Uh, Port Arthur. He goes there, he puts a camera down, he picks up his gun and walks and we cut. So we don't mm. see any of the actual thing. And the film is raising a very important point about mental health and about the ease with which he was able to access firearms at the time and the extent to which the legacy of the anti-firearm legislation that came about was enforced. It's not going to lend into its usual narrative, which is 
one that is very much adopted by, I think, American commentators a lot because they like for this to be a positive example. You know, in the same way that Michael Moore wanted the NHS to be a wonderful success story, people mm. want to look at Australia and say, look, they had a spree killing, it was horrible, but then they brought in legislation, they gave up their guns and everything was fine. And this mm. movie wants to say, okay, that's great for encouraging America to introduce their own gun laws, but it did not go as smoothly as you might want to paint it here because those laws were not fully enforced, there were not enough consequences for people who broke them, and it is still way too easy to get a firearm in this country. Mm. We have this intense but really compelling performance from Caleb Landry-Jones, which got him a prize at the Cannes Film Festival uh, last year, um, who just articulates this character who indulges in these random moments of anger and violence. He is dealing with some form of mental health issue that is not diagnosed within the film, but is very evident, um, as it was for the real guy. He is living a life that is defined by frustration and insularity. He is mm. constantly looking inwards, and the, you know, and um, Kurzel's camera captures this beautifully by just staying close to his head at all times in these really uncomfortable moments. Like early on in the film, he's just randomly uh, setting fireworks off in his yard, much to the annoyance of his neighbors. And there's just a really unsettling sense of this guy that he is capable of doing terrible things. Mm -hmm. um, and it just follows him and sort of explores him and the frustrations that he and his family are exploring, are experiencing. Sorry. Yeah, it feels like an earnest attempt to get into a very uncomfortable and frightening mindset. There's a great deal of artistry and claustrophobia and outrage in the movie that, you know, this guy was able to go on and not receive the attention that he clearly needed. So there's a somewhat of a sympathetic portrayal there, but also just demonstrating how easy it is for guys like this to get firearms in this country and how terrible that is. So... Yeah, I think there was... I think it justifies itself. I think it does justify the approach it took. And again, it is a movie that was an incredible thing to experience and one that is definitely going to stay with me, especially as spree shootings become, you know, just the, the crime of our age, it seems. Something that mm. just keeps happening. It was a very interesting insight into that. Um, but it's, again, as with Snowtown, not a movie that I hope that I'll see again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That sounds um, very interesting. <laughs> Consequently, I think I do have to give it four stars, but because mm. it really did affect me, um, it just made me want to leave, I think, all the way through. It just made me want to get wow. out and sort of reevaluate my own mindset and sort of address the fact I'm not I'm not getting into that same sort of insularity and, you know, resentment of mm. people around me because of my own anxieties. I, you know, a movie that made me just want to run for air. And mm. I think that's ultimately a fairly positive thing. Um, <laughs> that you Gosh, just... you love to punish yourself. Well, sometimes if you punish yourself, you can really enjoy not being punished afterwards mm. and think, okay, can I relate to this in any way? And is there anything I can do about that? I'm not saying I'm definitely going on a spree killing or I felt the need to do so. But um, yeah, this film, it just it just tips you just a little bit further towards the sane side thing, I think. Good. Uh, without necessarily stigmatizing people experiencing mental health issues mm. or um, or suggesting, you know, invoking too much sympathy for this guy because mm. ultimately it does show that you know it's his own terrible decisions that led him to where where he was yeah, yeah. very interesting mm. Mm. a dark note to end on yeah i think we've ended on such a yeah. sad note before we've ended on a downer so it's worth remembering that elvis comes out this friday 
Oh yes. <laughs> and so that is some that is very much the light at the end of the tunnel, and I look forward to us discussing yes. Elvis in that our next episode. Fun. I have watched the trailer. <laughs> yes, and very it, silly. Yeah, and I've seen some clips and seen the movement mm. coach interviewed, and based on that, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> it looks mm. silly in a way that I think I can get behind. Yeah, me too. Looks kind of cheesy. And I do kind of, I've quite kind of enjoyed these sort of biopic, larger than life, over the top yeah. films from the past <laughs> few years. I've really quite enjoyed Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> but I'm, I like Queen a lot. So. I haven't seen Rocket Man, which is meant to be no, actually the best of them. Like mm. that movie is meant to it be did extremely look good. good. Yeah. Mm. So I, I, yeah, I might try and see that before Elvis, just so I have a good point of comparison. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my big recommendation from the week is see men and make up your own mind, everyone. Mm-hmm. Maybe not Jen. Um, no. <laughs> bit scary. I never see men again. I refuse. <laughs> yeah, that's Closing fair. Closing my eyes right now. <laughs> and the other one is check out Top Gun whilst it's still in cinemas because yeah. it's it's a lot of fun. Oh! Oh, and All My Friends Hate Me. See All My Just, Friends Hate Me is the main yeah. thing. Yeah, definitely yeah, go see that Also definitely see that. Yeah, take um, people... It's it's just the best. <laughs> it's, I'm so glad they got a release. I know they were talking about it yeah, when we saw it at the film festival last uh, October. Yeah. Um, and I'm so glad they've uh, worked that out because it was so good. <laughs> yeah, it was so exactly. good. This film could really become like a British cult iconic yeah. film. It really yeah, has genuinely. the potential for that to just become something massive. It just reminds me of Shaun of the Dead in that sense. And as yes. much as it's full of Britishisms, but yes. has the potential, I feel, to go... Yeah. You know, just go international because yeah. it's so relatable. And a very strong sense of its own comedy and what it's going for. Yeah. Yeah. And Absolutely. very well produced <laughs> yeah. and acted and everything. Mm. Yeah, go see that. Go see that. Um, and then come right back here in order to learn more about Jen and the Film Critic. Mm. Yeah. You can. You can. That's you a can. fact. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can. You can. We do episodes. Come back here and listen to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Who did our music? It's really good. Uh, our music. Funny you asked. Our music ah. was by Jacob Blundell. <gasps> it's my brother. Yeah, hey. it's very good. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's good. Um, <laughs> and you can find us on social media. We are mm. on Twitter at Screen Mayhem for this is a Screen Mayhem podcast. For it is. For it is. And uh, we have an email address if you happen to want to write us an email. Uh, and that's <laughs> filmscriticpodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's about it. Yeah, that'll do. About good enough? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I My think social so. anxiety is getting the better of me. I need to go <laughs> lock myself in a cupboard before Roy Kinnear arrives. Oh, no. Oh, no. I need to just go lock myself in a cupboard for fun. <laughs> well, that's right. You're nasty. Mm. I'm Nasty Paul. And I'm lovely Jen. (laughs) Take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye.